Captain. Rail 4 is hailing us. On screen, Lieutenant. Greetings, Captain. This is the University of Kentucky radio ship WRFL Lexington 88.1. Mr. Data? The Federation has charted but not explored several Class M planets in that area. Any one of these planets might serve well as a base. I would agree, Captain. You see, RFLians have managed to completely eliminate commercial radio pollution from our planet. We've heard of your remarkable achievements in terraforming. My crew would very much appreciate looking around. I will say, Captain, we are much too busy right now to be looking after you and your crew. We would require no special attention. Ah, uh, well, very well. Set your hailing frequencies to 88.1 megahertz and make sure your dial is tuned all the way to the left. We await your arrival. Mr. Crusher? Lay in a course. Course is set, sir. Engage. The following program contains views, ideas, and opinions that have been produced by the host DJ and their guests and are not reflective of the views of WRFL or its underwriters. For questions, comments, or concerns, please email programming at wrfl.fm. My name's Bree, and you're listening to the first episode of Lex Talk a show designed to shed some light on some of the weirder, quirkier aspects of Lexington, Kentucky, and to foster a sense of community in a time when building in-person community is still pretty difficult due to the virus who must not be named. Today's episode is about Belle Breezing, infamous local Lexington madam who lived a life of mystery and intrigue. To talk about Belle, I have on the show Doug High, the director and producer of High Impact Productions, a group that worked on the documentary Bell Breezing and the Gilded Age of the Bluegrass. This documentary won several Emmys, and Doug became an expert in all things Bell Breezing during its production. In addition to his work with High Impact Productions, Doug has had a slew of other jobs in the community, including ABC News host, commander in the U.S. Navy Reserve, and director of the Kentucky Historical Society Foundation. Doug, thank you so much for coming on the show today to share your expertise. And how are you doing? Hey, Bree, I'm doing well. Um, yeah, you got all four of my jobs. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You seem like a very busy guy. Um, and I actually met you originally because of one of those jobs. Um, yeah. as your work in high impact productions because I was on the KET travel documentary. That's right. Transformative travels, exploring Kentucky and, and uh, how blessed I was to be a part of that program and to travel with you and your classmates and your professor out to Western Kentucky for a week. Great, great gig. Yes, that was a lot of fun. Um, actually was recognized the other day, which was very weird. That only ever happened once um, at an Orthodox Greek barbecue. Um, but okay. that was, was a very, very interesting time. Um, but today we're going to talk a bit about a different project you did with High Impact Productions, which was your documentary on Bell Breezing, um, called Bell Breezing yeah. and the Gilded Age of the Bluegrass. Um, and I just want to start off with a little background on Bell Breezing for those who have never heard of her before. Would you mind giving a brief overview of this Lexington figure? Oh sure, um, and and yeah, what a what a figure she is. Uh, Belle Breezing was a uh, nationally known and certainly infamous uh, Commonwealth of Kentucky resident in um, in the uh, 19th century, uh, early 20th century. 
She was a madam, ran a, uh, a bawdy house, as they said in the, back in the day, and was considered nationally to, to sort of be the, uh, the best of the best in, uh, in that particular field. So, um, but her home, her uh, mansion for men, in 1895 had uh, had national reputation. So uh, Lexington at the time sort of had this uh, kind of Vegas kind of vibe where, you know, if you're if you're wealthy and you're in Philadelphia, if you're in New York, if you're in Boston, you came to Lexington to buy your horses. Uh, you, you went to the races and then you would go to Bell's home for a, a six course meal in black tie. And uh, the evening took you. Uh, where you wanted it to go. So that's, uh, that's Belle Breezing. So, so many interesting components about her life though. Um, and many believe her to be um, the, uh, the person who inspired Margaret Mitchell, who wrote Gone with the Wind, uh, one of her characters in Gone with the Wind in the book and in the film, Belle Watling, based almost entirely on Lexington's Belle Breezing. So um, just an amazing story around her. Absolutely. That was one of my questions I had for you. Um, in your research for the documentary, did you find out whether Bell Breezing was actually the inspiration? Because I've heard that bandied about, but I wasn't yeah, sure. You're, you're right. Um, Margaret Mitchell denied it initially when it was brought up uh, when the film came out in 1939. But Margaret's husband uh, actually lived in Lexington for a time, and he was a reporter and a copy editor for the Lexington Herald, uh, which became the Lexington Herald Leader newspaper. And he would actually take his breakfast sometimes in Bell's back, uh, back room of her kitchen uh, with uh, the cops who walked the beats and other, other folks in the neighborhood. And he surely shared these stories of uh, bloody Bell breezing to his wife, Margaret. And there, there is some documentation that does show that, yes, uh, you know, they admitted within family circles that Belle Watling from Gone with the Wind was based on Belle Breezing. But to the, to the public face, so that they were, they were worried about being sued by Belle's estate, there was none, you know, no worry there. Uh, but uh, just for that public face, they said no, uh, that she wasn't inspired by Belle. But absolutely, most certainly was. She's Bell Watling is bell breezing down to the T. That is so cool to be able to go in and figure figure out the truth of rumors like that. Um, and I feel like you probably got to do that a lot in this project and some others. Yep. And I was wondering Absolutely. what initially led you to become interested in a documentary about Bell specifically. Well, I was a history major in college, so history has always been my first and foremost passion, and I got into broadcasting. I came to Lexington in 1999, 2000, to work for uh, Channel 27, and uh, uh, was, had been in TV for, you know, 10 years up at that point up in Ohio, and was introduced to the story of Bell and was just immediately fascinated and captivated by, by this story, this, this, you know, working girl with a heart of gold, and, and, you know, the fact that she reached such, you know, national heights. Um, and I was stunned to find out that no one had ever produced a documentary about Belle. Now, there's several great books out there about her. 
and we utilized those books and those authors uh, in our documentary, but no one had tried to tackle this. And my theory on that is that the Victorian era is hard to do reenactments of. You know, if you're doing a, a, a history piece for the History Channel or for A&E or whoever, it's very easy to do Civil War. There's all the reenactors out there and they've got all the uniforms and all the gear. But Victorian era, 1880s, 1890s, with those gorgeous gowns that they had on, uh, very expensive to reproduce for a film. And I, I just I don't think anyone had uh, come up with the money or the where for all to, to figure out how to do that. So. I kind of set my mind on trying to get around that and, and we, we found a way. Yeah, take us into that process of creating the documentary a little bit. How did it work to find costumers and did you try to involve local Lexingtonians? I know that the, the star of the show was an alumna or is an alumna of the UK theater department. Yes, yes. Um, well, absolutely. I always used local. Um, but I actually had an, an additional incentive to do that because at the time, Kentucky had a, a film tax incentive for, uh, for producing documentaries, for producing TV programs or motion pictures to where you actually got a portion of your budget back in tax, uh, tax rebates. So quite frankly, it was the only way I could even afford to do the film. Um, and unfortunately, that, that program's not currently up and running the way it used to be, but it, it, it was the way we got it done. But um, I met a gentleman named Nelson Fields who worked for UK for years in the theater department. And, and he is a, a professional costumer and a costume designer and approached him and just started talking to him about some of these issues because I, I knew we had to have reenactments because we only have what, six photos of Bell. It's a little hard to do an, an hour program on, on just six pictures. We had to have reenactments. And so uh, Nelson found a way for us to be able to do the costuming. He actually designed and made several of Bell's outfits for us. And then we, we borrowed a few uh, from UK as well. Um, so we, we solved that puzzle. And then between the Kentucky Historical Society having a Victorian parlor on their museum floor, using the Henry Clay Estate Ashland in their dining room, which was done in a Victorian style and their, and their beautiful uh, staircase is very Victorian. We were able to figure out how to recreate Bell Breezing's Mansion for Men in 1895. That is just seems like such a huge undertaking. Um, but what's crazy to me is that she really did live and walk these same streets that we walk today. Um, the proximity of that story, even though it was over 100 years ago, um, really strikes me as, as odd. Um, and I just wondered what parts of Lexington did she frequent? Where, what, where were her, do you call them brothels or is that yeah. more of a lower establishment? Cause she had no, quite a, no, a fancy was, establishment. De definitely a uh, brothels fair. Um, but yeah, there's just so many still uh, touchstones to Belle out there now. I mean, you can visit her grave um, at the uh, Calvary uh, Cemetery across from the Lexington Cemetery. People still leave change money on top of her tombstone, which um, I was very emotional actually when we went out there to, to get some shots of her tombstone because I've been researching her for two years uh, to make this film. Um, her, one of her first homes after, after her internship, I call it at, uh, at Jenny Hill's house, which was uh, her, the Mary Todd Lincoln house, correct? The Mary Todd Lincoln house, yes. That struck um, me as crazy when researching this. 
It is crazy. She had actually two homes on North Upper Street. One of them now is the Transylvania University women's locker room for their field, their field house by the by the big uh, track and field out there. That was one of Belle Breezing's homes. Um, so the house, the, the house, the, the famous house, the 1895 mansion was on a street called McGowan, which got renamed to Eastern Avenue. And it burned down in 1973. But if you walk up Eastern Avenue, where, right where a cup of Commonwealth is, you just walk right up the street from that, um, you can see the, the lot uh, where it was on, uh, on what's now known as Eastern Avenue. Um, so yeah, there's just, there's so, like you said, I mean, Lexington's great that way. There's just so much, you know, the bones of, of history still kind of surround us with a, with a modern city kind of pulse, pulsing underneath, but Bell's still, you know, there's still a footprint there. What I really love though, is we actually had the premiere of the documentary at the Kentucky theater downtown. And this is where Gone with the Wind premiered. Oh, and wow. I didn't know that. Yes, that is amazing. Six, six months before her death. So think about this. Lexingtonians sitting in the Kentucky theater watching Gone with the Wind. And here is Belle Breezing, who's just a few blocks away, a recluse for 20 some years, dying of cancer of the uterus, a, a hopeless morphine addict at this point, living in this giant decaying mansion. And everyone in that audience knew when Belle Watling came on the screen, that's our Belle, that's Belle Breezing, that's Lexington's Belle Breezing. So that connection, that thread, I just found fascinating. Then again, emotional to kick off this film and, and we sold out, we sold all 800 seats in the Kentucky theater that night in 2017 for our, for our premiere. And then it ran on KET after that. But um, what a what a cool journey to to kind of tie all that together in the same theater where Gone with the Wind premiered in Lexington. I had no idea that she was still alive when Gone with the Wind came out. Just, yeah, six months before her death in 1940. Um, and, you know, she, when the U.S. Army shut her down, finally, once and for all, in 1917, she stayed in that house uh, and, and hardly took any visitors from 1917 until her death in 1940. So you can imagine the surrounding neighborhoods and things, just all the speculation. What's what's old Bell up to in there? You know, that kind of thing. So uh, a really, uh, again, just every chapter of her life is so fascinating. And it, the film uh, has a, her, her life is great television. I mean, you have several murders that are kind of swirling around her. You have that hard scrabble start to where she almost had no choice but to pursue the road that uh, she went down there. Um, and, and then to think born in 1860, right before the Civil War starts and to die in 1940 and to think of all the history that takes place between those two uh, posts, pretty, pretty incredible. Oh, absolutely. And we've kind of glossed over some of the, the super tragic portions of her life, as well as some of the more triumphant ones. Um, but to give a little more background on the timeline, um, through my research, and correct me if I've got this incorrectly, because I just pulled up some tabs, but um, Mary, Mary Bell Cox was her the name she was born with. Um, she was born right. into relative poverty in 1860 right. to right. a dressmaker and occasional prostitute in Lexington. That's right. Um, That's middle right. of her life, skipping ahead a little bit, she became the most famous madam in Lexington, ran several high-class brothels, as you mentioned, 
and then eventually passed away a rich woman trying to uh, kind of throwing it back in the faces of people who had initially snubbed her. She would very publicly go to the bank and deposit her checks. Um, Yes. Um, And that was in 1940, aged 80, uh, after, as you said, her brothels were shut down and there was kind of a wave of morality and the temperance movement coming through. And she she lived off her investments. She was a super smart businesswoman in a time when maybe women didn't have some of the other options for business, like you were a teacher or a dressmaker. That's right. I mean, think of her, think of her start, you know, um, in 1860, her parents, uh, pretty hard scrabble start, you know, her parents just were violent drunks and fought with each other. And there's incredible documentation about that. She was um, adopted by George Breezing, who wasn't her father, uh, but she took his name. And then at the age of 12, she's seduced by a near 40 year old man, uh, Dionoso uh, Musi. And we have us. We have her scrapbook in the UK archives, and she was a hopeless romantic, like a lot of Victorians were. And she cut out, you know, pictures of you know roses and birds and things from magazines at the time. And she was a, a wonderful poet. She wrote all this amazing poetry, and all of it's very, you know, very above her age, very above her pay grade. Uh, because here she is, you know, romantically involved with this with this 40 year old man and she's 12 and which is totally acceptable at the time uh, period, you know, no laws against that. Um, but she develops just this really rough reputation in Lexington and, you know, poor, bad rep. And she says, well, I, you know, I can either be a seamstress like my mother and slash occasional prostitute or I can really go for it and try to be the very best prostitute I can be. Yeah, talk about committing to your choices. Right, exactly, exactly. So she she has a little girl. um, Her mother passes away and they're evicted out of her. She comes back from her mother's funeral with her baby, her two-month-old baby in her arms, and there's a padlock on the door. She has nowhere to go. And so she finally just says, okay, she leaves the baby with some neighbors and says, I'm I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, take care of take care of her. And then she goes to Jenny Hill's house, which was at the time the most famous brothel in Lexington. And as you mentioned, in the Mary Todd Lincoln house and uh, knocks on her back door, supposedly on Christmas Eve and says, I, you know, I've got nowhere to go. Jenny takes her in. She spends the next several years sort of developing her clientele list, you know, learning the business, learning how to be a really sharp businesswoman until she strikes out on her own there with those homes on uh, North Upper Street. And really that's when the reputation takes off. She wants the best of everything, the best china, the best dresses, the best ladies. She, she's training them all on, on how to treat the clientele. And again, you walk in and everybody's in formal wear. <laughs> everybody's in black tie and you're drinking the finest Kentucky bourbon and the finest wines. And, and um, you know, it, it's, it, it must have been a sight to see. Yeah, absolutely. When researching this, I saw that she would only buy her dresses from New York. I don't know if that's a verified fact, but I wondered how she even got them. Is that a request through mail kind of deal or did she travel all the way up there? No, she traveled. She traveled. And uh, she also, you know, went to some department stores in Cincinnati too. We have some of her dresses uh, actually, again, in the UK archives and they're featured in the documentary. Uh, one of them has a tag that says Chilitos, which was a department store in Cincinnati. And it was still around 
when I was a little boy living in Cincinnati. And I remember my parents taking me to show it though. So you can imagine the shiver that went down my spine when I, you know, I'm holding one of Bell's dresses and I see Shillito, Cincinnati, Ohio on this dress from, you know, 1910. And again, it makes you realize history's not as far back as we think it is. I get chills very easily, but I just got them then as well. That's <laughs> very cool. Yes. Um, oh, just being in the, the King Library at UK, any of the older documents and hearing the stories behind them always get that feeling, but that, that is very cool. Um, I'll tell you too, Brie, when we, uh, when we cracked open the archives at UK, you know, there's all the photographs, there's the uh, official pardons from Kentucky's governor when he, he, Luke Blackburn pardoned her very famously for running a body house, but missing from the collection, but listed as should be in the collection was her book of book of accounts, her book of her ledger with, she kept meticulous notes of all of her clients and how much they spent on drinks and food and, and everything was very carefully documented. Well, that ledger mysteriously disappeared out of the UK archives years and years back. We only have a photograph of kind of all the contents of that archive laid out and there's the ledger book. It's not there now, I'm here to tell you. And, and people have told me it hasn't been there for about 20 years. So someone in Lexington did not want those family names that are still all over Lexington out there. And uh, yeah, it, it took a little trip somewhere. Wow, what is your, what's your hypothesis for where that went? Well, again, I think it kind of factors back into Lexington. You know, we, we have um, sort of our Lexington aristocracy, uh, those old, old names. And um, some of those folks, you know, did, did frequent bells. And it was sort of a, uh, you know, a wink and a, you know, I, I don't, if I don't see what's going on, I'm not going to call you on it sort of vibe. And all set, all fine and good until someone realized that Bell had kept very, very good notes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, I, I think people just didn't want that ledger someday to fall into the hands of some, you know, documentary filmmaker like myself or others who uh, might publish those names. I would have never done that. But I can tell you that when I was trying to uh, fundraise for the film, some people were like, oh, my gosh, this is an incredible story, an incredible piece of Kentucky history. It must be told. And then other people were like, why would you why would you want to talk about that? Yeah, and it feels so like in a way the story is still developing. It's very odd because there's so many Lexington families that have a brick from Belle Breezing's house on their coffee table or on their mantle. They may have her hairbrush. They may have, you know, it was it was very in vogue to have something of Belle's. Um, but at the same time, then you also wouldn't say hi to her if you ran across her on, a, on the street, uh, you would turn the other way. Um, so yeah, there's this very, very uh, duplicitous sort of relationship we had with her where we recognized that she was a, um, a, a working and, and uh, successful member of the community. But at the same time, there were times you just couldn't recognize her, like when the, um, the uh, orphanage burned down in Lexington and she famously bought out all of the linens in town and had them sent to the orphanage. Um, and once the nurses found out that who they were from, they turned them away. They'd rather have the orphans cold than to uh, have a blanket from Belbreezy. So, you know, that's that, that kind of... Uh, 
that, that situation there is still, you know, there's still threads of that going on today, which I find fascinating. Yeah, I used to, when I first moved here, and even before researching a little bit about Bell Breezing, I saw Lexington as quite a vanilla place. Um, I moved in 2014, and the Lex Vegas uh, title that people humorously give it would always make me laugh. I was like, oh, come on, nothing happens in Lexington. Turns out a lot, a lot of... Uh, Vegas style things have happened in Lexington. That's true. And the name I, is I more like apt the, than I thought. I think we work hard and we play hard in Lexington. And I think when you add in the, the horse racing and the, you know, these 400 horse farms that circle the city, uh, our bourbon and, and, you know, and our, our desire to have a good time and also, you know, be successful, you, you kind of get that Vegas esque mix uh, to it. Yet at the same time, you know, like you said, there's this sort of veneer of, it's not a veneer. I mean, this is a great town and it's a great place to raise a family, but um, we, we do sort of have that mischievous sort of, you know, it's a Southern thing kind of going on too. Yeah, we're in the Bible belt. Uh, <laughs> I, I, def I want to ask you more. Bell was caught up in all of that. It's incredible. Yeah, it's so interesting, this kind of duality that Lexington has. And that's opened up so many more questions. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to launch into talking some more about Bell Breezing. All right. This portion of WRFL's programming is made possible in part by Broomwagon Coffee and Bikes. Located at 800 North Limestone Street, Broom Wagon offers a cafe and espresso bar in addition to its full-service bike shop. For more information, you can visit broomwagonbikes.com or call 859-554-6938. WRFL thanks Broom Wagon for supporting College Radio. Okay, welcome back. You are listening to WRFL Lexington. This is Bree Stanley with the show Lex Talk. I have Doug High of High Impact Productions on the show today talking about Belle Breezing, the most famous madam of Lexington. Um, some say the inspiration for Belle Watling from Gone with the Wind. And I realized, Doug, we maybe didn't say the name of your documentary at the beginning, and I'm sorry about that. But no, it's, it's okay. I think you did, actually. It's, uh, it's Belle Breezing and the Gilded Age of the Bluegrass. Yes. Uh, because we really do try to. We have so many great photographs of what Lexington looked like. Uh, during this her heyday in the 1880s, 1890s, turn of the century. And we feature all that too. And, and like you mentioned, it's just incredible to look at these pictures and be like, that building's still standing, or I, I know that street corner and there's a such and such there now. So um, it, it, this film is for people that love Lexington history, that love, um, that may be caught up in kind of the pageantry of the Victorian era, like Downton Abbey. Uh, and then also that, uh, yeah, may be interested in the Gone with the Wind connection and, and just the fact that uh, Belle Breezing led this incredible uh, life that defied all the odds. And, um, you know, say what you will about her. She, she uh, was a kind woman and she was a successful woman. Absolutely. Um, what do you think it is that's so fascinating about Bell Breezing? Gosh, I think we all, I think as Americans in particular, I think we love a success story. We love, that's true. we love a hard scrabble, you know, pulled herself up by the bootstraps. Unfortunately, you know, again, as we discussed earlier, she didn't have many options available to her, but the, the one route she did have and that she was really kind of boxed into, she said, I, you know, this is me. 
this is who I'm going to be. I'm going to be the, the very best at it I can be. And, you know, with, with the right connections, um, she, she made a very important connection with a, a very wealthy businessman in Philadelphia who sort of became her sponsor, William Singerly, who owned the Philadelphia newspapers. Um, she, uh, she found the right financing and man, did she, uh, did she turn a profit? Watching the documentary that you made gives a great picture of what it was like in Bell's establishment, but would you mind maybe painting, painting an audio picture for us? Sure. Um, you know, we tried to recreate and we did the best we could with the number of people we had and the costumes we had, but um, her, her big unveiling of this mansion for men that was built and, and, and her big opening night in 1895 when she moves from her, her second house on, on North Upper Street to this incredible three-story home uh, in 1895, just the, there were musicians there uh, performing. Again, everyone in black tie uh, and evening attire, you know, six course meal. And we, we try to recreate that using the um, Ashland Henry Clay dining room, which was done in a Victorian style and uh, just a very opulent table set. Again, the finest of everything for Bell's establishment. And, you know, these gentlemen would come in, have a, 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 an incredible meal uh, with a, a lovely hostess and just sort of casual conversation. And folks would sort of drift off to a, uh, uh, more uh, more private uh, environments uh, as the night went on. So that's really kind of the vibe of it's it's not the Dolly Parton chicken ranch vibe from Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. You know, <laughs> yeah, we're not throwing people around and beer bottles breaking everywhere. This is a very uh, classy uh, event, very Victorian events that, that Bell would put on. And she made sure she, she orchestrated all of this. Uh, the main thing she taught her girls, she taught, she taught them incredible manners and to be good listeners. But uh, what really kept the, uh, the cash register ringing was alcohol sales, uh, bourbon and, and wine. And these gentlemen would buy drinks for the ladies. And if they turned their head, you know, the, the drink got poured out in a uh, potted plant somewhere and oh I'm, no way i need another one so and again in that ledger book you could you know you she kept track of all of that you know what what girl was matched up with what gentleman for the evening and how many drinks she was able to have him purchase uh from the house so yes i read that she uh, didn't take a cut um, of the girls' pay like traditional madams would but most of her revenue would come from those alcohol sales Right. It was it was a, it was a much uh, more beneficial financial arrangement for the ladies. And she was so she was able to get the very best. Uh, and then there were a lot of young ladies that found her themselves on her doorstep as Bell was on Jenny Hill's doorstep years back. And if she didn't think that the young lady had the constitution for this kind of work, she'd put a little money in her pocket and a little food in her stomach and she'd send her home. What do we know about Belle's personality? Because it seems like she is a very generous and um, focused individual with a keen business sense. Um, but how was she as a person? Um, it, that, that's the tough part to pull together. I mean, um, there's a great book that was written in the early 80s by a gentleman named Buddy Thompson. And I used it quite a bit in the film. And Buddy's not a classically trained historian, 
but what he had over everybody else and what we're so grateful for to have now is that he collected first person interviews with all of these folks in the 60s and 70s that knew Bell, that knew her. And, you know, there's some lore and legend going on in there. You know, there's some stories that might seem too too big to be true or, you know, have kind of expanded over over the uh, over the decades. But the overarching themes, I think, when you're done with this book is that, yes, she she did have a heart of gold, but she was an astute businesswoman and, um, you know, ran ran a meticulous organization and, um, you know, was was kind while she did it. She sort of had a, a, a man out front, uh, as would be for the time. She had a, a relationship with a, a, a local accountant named Billy Maybon, who became her lover. And uh, they were together for decades, decades and decades. In fact, when the U.S. Army finally shut her down during World War One, it was that and the fact that she had just lost Billy that really finally made her decide, okay, enough is enough. I'm, I'm closing my doors. But um, Billy would sort of, you know, be the front of the house. He would, you know, make sure all the, all the groceries and all the alcohol and everything was taken care of. Um, and then Bell sort of ran the back of the house, making sure the ladies knew what their what their jobs were and 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 what they had to do for the night. And and then you know she just sort of set this orchestra in motion. She was a conductor uh, of a of a kind of an orchestrated event in these evenings here in Lexington. Yeah, she had just such a such a full and dramatic life um, that I I'm surprised somebody didn't create a documentary about it before that, that was I was stunned really there's there's just so much there and and we were so pleased with what we were able to do I mean we we had um, Mary Jean Wall who'd written a great book about Bell who's one of our you know biggest names in journalism in Lexington worked for the Herald Leader for years Buddy Thompson's book Buddy had passed but his book was invaluable to us Doug Tattershall uh, local a uh, gentleman wrote another great book about Bell that we, we sourced quite a bit. Foster Ackerman, who's the uh, president of the Lexington History Museum, also was on camera. Um, and then uh, Elizabeth Shatner, who's the wife of William Shatner, Captain Kirk. Um, uh, she agreed to be our narrator. She has a lovely voice and a great storytelling spirit. And um, I've known the Shatners for years through... Um, some equine therapy programs that we work together on to help uh, U.S. military folks. And so I was so blessed to have uh, Bill and Elizabeth at our premiere, and she did such a wonderful job as our narrator. And then, of course, Lori Janae Preston, as Bell Breezing, was, it had to happen. Lori had already played Bell in a stage production twice, I think uh, 2004 and 2011 at UK. And so she knew this character and Lori's just an amazing actress. And, and she, she just, she really channeled Belle and brought those reenactment scenes to life. And really, I think that's really kind of Lori's performance. We owe just as much of that as anything we have in the film to, to help us remember Belle Breezing. Yeah, I can tell that this was just such an immersive experience. And we're over Zoom right now, which other people can't see, but you've got a bell breezing poster up behind you and yes. <laughs> you, you have all of you have all of this information. And I was wondering yeah, we, whether 
you had a little DVD run here uh, for a while as well. You know, one other one other Bell kind of uh, touchstone that I forgot to mention, we actually have Bell Breezing's mirror from her parlor, this massive mirror in our collection on the museum floor at the Kentucky Historical Society. Oh, we very good. We shot a lot of our reenactments right in front of that. So to see Lori Preston as Bell reflected in this mirror that Bell stared into for so many years. Yeah, it's like a whole another level of method acting. You're using the actual stuff. Right, right. So just so many, like you said, chills sort of moments that, that came through this production. So, I mean, it's hard to believe it's been three years now, but I spent a good two years putting this all together. And then that, that big celebration night of the premiere in uh, February uh, 2017, that certainly was a night I'll remember. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you is whether you used many of Belle's actual artifacts from her life in the film, because I remember reading that she um, she had a large estate and it took three years to auction everything off after she died. And uh, as you said, people were excited to even just have a brick from her house. Um, and Marie, you should see the photographs they have of the crowd of Lexingtonians outside of her home. Uh, in 1940 for this auction. And I mean, they took everything. They took the, uh, they took the hinges off the doors. Uh, they took the hardware off the doors. Uh, I mean, they, everyone wanted something of Bell's. And to this day, there's many a Lexington family, a Central Kentucky family that has an item of Bell Breezings in their home. Uh, just sort of a, you know, it's just a conversation piece, I guess, at parties. Hey, guess where that Guess where that brick came from? Guess whose hairbrush that is? You know, and again, an amazing thing considering that um, these these folks would not have said hello to her or made eye contact with her walking down the street. Absolutely, that is just so crazy to me that we have this r religious moral side of Lexington where they turn up their noses at that, and yet we're all we're all secretly or not so secretly fascinated with her life. Well, and that's it's so apparent now too with, you know, Bell's Cocktail House named after her, which is a great, you know, great hangout. We actually had our after party there after the documentary. Wow, that's perfect. Um, for years, downtown Lexington had a Bell Breezing bed race where they would put, you know, a big, uh, big brass bed frame on wheels and, and they would, you know, race these things down the street uh, named after Bell. There's been alcohol named after Bell. So, I mean, she's definitely part of our, uh, our, our culture. Uh, and and uh, you know, that's, I think that's, again, why the um, Visit Lex and the Lexington Convention and Visitors Bureau folks got behind it too, because this is a huge part of our history. Uh, what, you know, she, she was one of the only women allowed to walk into the Phoenix Hotel, sit down, have a drink with gentlemen, playing cards and discuss politics of the day. I mean, this just did not happen for anyone other than Belle Breezing. And it seems so hypocritical to honor her so much now. It's interesting. There's no question about it, but um, what a life. And, you know, the, the, the two murders that kind of, you know, are in orbit around her too, you know, will never, will never ever be solved. And there's just so much smoke and mystery in the air about it both. You can, you can wonder and speculate forever, you know, whether she pulled the trigger, whether, um, you know, she was involved in them. I mean, there's just so many great sub stories in Bell's story to uh, to dive into. 
Absolutely. I'm debating whether we should dive into a little bit about that or leave it as a teaser for the documentary. You know, it's it's uh, it's a complicated story, but um, you know, I, I will say a, a gentleman wound up dead with a gunshot wound to the temple behind Belle Breezing's home that she shared with her mother in an alley, and she was married at the time. There was another gentleman suitor at the time, and then there was that Dionoso Musi that I mentioned earlier that was still kind of hovering in the picture. So. Um, Bell basically had three relationships spinning here in her early days, and one of them winds up dead. Her husband flees to Cincinnati and doesn't return to Lexington for a decade plus. So, you know, easily could, you know, speculation could easily fall on him. Um, but then there's, there's some actual notes where she's referring to bring my pistol from the pawn shop uh, references. So, did she put the bullet in in this uh, Johnny Cook's, you know, brain? I don't know, and no one. I don't think anyone will ever know. But speculation at the time was, you know, the police ruled this a suicide. They decided that this young man was just so spurned by Bell, and he couldn't go on living. But popular opinion at the time, and still remains, is that this was a murder. Yeah, and I remember if I remember rightly from the account I was reading, she was also pregnant around that time. That's right. Um, ended up having two children, um, at least one of them. They're not sure which of the suitors was the father. And that just deepens the mystery. The, the baby too was, was such a tragic story too. Little Daisy, uh, who was born with, with some uh, pretty serious uh, mental issues and physical issues. And, she, uh, you know, the neighbors took care of her initially while she was getting her start at Jenny Hill's house, but then um, Belle could afford to have the finest care for her, so she sent her to Cincinnati to a, uh, to a convent, and they, they cared for her her whole life, and every now and again, Belle would bring her back to Lexington to spend a week or two with her, and she would always rent out a floor of the Phoenix Hotel, because she said, my, my daughter will never step foot in a brothel, even the you know, the most opulent one in the United States, arguably. And um, so she, she cared for Daisy, you know, dearly, and um, her estate was left to her. I did not know that part of the story. That's yeah. beautiful because I know Belle's mother was also a prostitute. So I guess Belle was intentionally breaking that cycle with Daisy. I think so. I think, I think she realized that, you know, she had finally achieved a position and a status and an ability to say, you know, not, not my daughter. And um, uh, yeah, that, that's a really interesting component to her life for sure. We're going to take another quick break and we will be back to talk a little more about Belle's legacy. Purifell's programming is made possible in part by Pearl's Restaurant. Pearl's Pizza offers wood-fired pizza, salads, and a selection of vegan options. Pearl's is located at 133 North Limestone. For more information, you can call 859-309-0321 or visit www.pearlspizzapie.com. WRFL thanks Pearl's for supporting College Radio. Welcome back to Lex Talk on WRFL Lexington. I'm here with Doug High, the producer of High Impact Productions. Would you call yourself the producer? 
Uh, producer, director, bottle washer, yeah. Okay, yeah. all of Here. all of the above. Um, <laughs> to talk a little bit about his documentary, Bell Breezing and the Gilded Age of the Bluegrass, which is about local Lexington, Madam Bell Breezing. So we have been talking about the story of her life, and we wanted to delve into a little bit about the end of her life and maybe the period from when she was shut down by the, I'm not sure what she was shut down by actually, but from then until her death. There were, I think there were multiple issues that all came to a head that really, you know, forced her to shut her doors for good, Brie. And, and uh, we've mentioned, you mentioned the temperance movement in this country and the war against vice. And, and you could see that happening in Lexington at the time, too, where, where uh, folks were saying, look, you know, these red light districts, let's make sure we keep them isolated. Let's make sure we keep them, you know, in a certain grid of the city and not let their influence spread to the good people of, uh, of Lexington. Um, and that pressure was increasing. It was increasing politically. You know, how, how can we keep, you know, pardoning, you know, this, this uh, most uh, orderly of disorderly homes as how Time Magazine put it. Uh, so you, you had that. You also had another murder in her house. Uh, one of her girls was, was stabbed and killed by a, a, a jealous customer. Um, and that that really brought an additional spotlight on her at the time where she didn't need it, when temperance was also kind of banging at the door. And then finally, World War One comes in 1917, and the U.S. Army sets up a, um, a training camp outside of Lexington, and they can't keep the officers out of Bell's house. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I read that actually the officers were the only ones allowed in Bell's house, such a they, fancy establishment. She kept all of the, the lower level soldiers out. You know, what's interesting, though, is I found in, in the archives at UK, there is a, um, uh, a lapel pin. The officers uh, in the World War I uniforms, they kind of had the high, high collar and they had a little U.S. Army uh, symbol insignia here. And she had one in her possession, and it must have meant something for her to keep it. It's actually an, an enlisted version uh, of, of that uh, military symbol. So she, she must have had a friend uh, or someone that meant something to her to, to hold on to that. But um, so the Army did what governors couldn't do, what vice intemperance movements couldn't do. And they finally said, enough is enough, you know. This, this uh, army base outside of Lexington meant a lot of revenue for the city too. And they're like, you need to shut this down. And so that combined with the fact that uh, Billy Maybon, uh, her, her longstanding partner, her lover, her business partner passed away around the same time. And she, she finally said, okay. Cause she had shut her doors once or twice sort of as a wink, wink, okay, you got us. And then would sort of secretly reopen. And then in 1917, with, with the culmination of all these things, with Billy's death, with the army, with the temperance movement, and, and the bad press she was getting from the murder in her house, she said, okay, we're done. And from 1917 till her death in 1940, she was basically uh, Lexington's most famous recluse. And uh, there's so little, so little we have on her, uh, on her story for those years. That's what I was going to ask if we knew anything about how she spent the last 23 years, maybe more than very, more? very closed off. She took she took a few visitors from the good old days. Um, I remember reading about some uh, UK professors or some some 
some folks that uh, they call themselves the book thieves, I believe they came and she allowed them to take some some first editions and some valuable books out of her library to keep as souvenirs. I think she knew that she was sort of, you know, winding down and fewer years in front of her than behind her. She was a morphine addict. Um, she had cancer of the uterus, which was a pretty common thing for women in her line of work at the time. And she got hopelessly addicted to morphine. So the doctor was there quite a bit writing just, you know, huge prescriptions for her. Um, she had just a very few close friends slash folks that were kind of keeping the house running, but this was very, you know, Miss Haversham, Charles Dickens, this thing is decaying around her and all of the opulence from the Victorian era, just sort of, and, and those former glory years, just sort of in ruins uh, around her by the time she passes in 1940. And she passed quite old at age 80. Um, Right. So, I mean, eight, 18, 1860 to 1940. In fact, I think her they have her dates wrong uh, on her tombstone, which is like the final indignity yes. to, her, to her hard scrabble life. But um, and then the house, you know, burns down in 1973. Um, but um, really, yeah, between between all the, the big headlines and the, you know, the auction and, and selling the estate. Uh, after she passes, but so little is known from 1917 to, to 1940, unfortunately. Which is kind of, I kind of like that. I like that she was able to retain her privacy and maybe keep some of the gawking eyes away, um, curious, judgmental people. She yeah. had to live that in relative privacy. I hope she got to travel a little bit. I don't know if it was possible based on the morphine issue and the, the cancer, but um, I hope she got to travel. I hope she got to lead a, you know, some sort of life of enjoyment under, you know, away from those prying judgmental eyes locally, but um, who knows, you know, she may have just enjoyed her home and enjoyed her books and the few friends that, that she allowed to call on her. You mentioned the connection between Bell and many local establishments, um, the bed race, which I'm very curious about. Why did that end? I'm not sure. Why did that uh, begin? I don't that, know that anything all, about that. That all folded before I arrived here in 1999. I would like to get into that a little more and learn a little more about that. But it was it was quite the local event for a number of years. And uh, But people turn up all the time. And after the documentary came out and after it ran on KET, I had people contacting me saying, hey, I have I have uh, a bedroom set from Bell Breezing or I have a this or I have a that. And I'm like, oh, I wish I would have known, you know, before we did the film. But we do, we do feature her collection of clothing at UK prominently in the film. Uh, we do feature... Um, the Mirror from the Kentucky Historical Society uh, and uh, uh, all the, uh, the places still standing, like the Women's Fieldhouse at Transylvania University, which was one of her homes on North Upper. So um, there's, still, there's still plenty of bell history around and about. I remember when I was little, the courthouse downtown was at least in part a museum. Um, and now it is not. Is there a Lexington Museum currently? There is. There is uh, the Lexington History Museum. If you, they've been virtual ever since then. They ran into, a, I think, an asbestos problem um, in the old courthouse and had to move out. And the thing got completely renovated. And now it's the headquarters for Visit Lex. And um, 
Uh, Weed and Michael has an awesome restaurant in there, among other offices. But There's bourbon perfume sniffers. So yes. Coolest bit to me. <laughs> Smell right. the different types of bourbon. But Lex Lexington history is very much alive. And Foster Ackerman, who was one of our historians in uh, the Bell Breeze and documentary, is still the president. And uh, they've actually taken up residence in a historic home in downtown Lexington now. So you'll be, you know, they, they haven't quite thrown the doors open yet, thanks to COVID. But um, I think in the next year or two, you're going to start hearing and seeing more from them and more about Lexington history, which I think is awesome. We've got an incredible history here. That is super exciting. I think the lack of a of a location to go to learn about these things has maybe kept Bell and other stories more shrouded in mystery than they would have been otherwise. And I'm very excited. Well, we've got to get you uh, on the road to Frankfurt, Bree, so you can visit us at the Kentucky Historical Society. You can see Bell's Mirror. You can um, walk through a Victorian parlor as a Lexington home would have looked like in the 1880s. Um, well, you can start from, you know, the, the time, you know, the settlers arrived to uh, the present day through a, a Kentucky journey at the Kentucky Historical Society. So if, if you're a history fan, and I'm getting the sense you are, oh uh, yeah, we got to get you to Frankfurt for a day. Yes, I am nerding out a little bit. I have very many interests, was not a, too many interests probably, it was not a history major, but I always thought it would be like a weird dream job would be to create some of those plaques that mark historic areas um, in Kentucky. We do all of those. Oh, so cool. Historical society. So we have an app actually that tracks them all. Uh, so yeah, you, you have some time on your hands and you want to do a, a cool, uh, you know, weekend road trip or something and, and hit, you know, 50 or a hundred of, you know, of these amazing uh, plaques we've got out there. And that's, yeah, that's a weekend well spent. Very cool. So we are nearing the end of our time, but I wanted to ask you what you think Belle's legacy is today, um, and what do you want people to remember about her and take away from your documentary? Well, you know, I, I think it was something that Time Magazine, you know, noted her death with her obituary, noted that she ran the most orderly of disorderly homes in the United States, that she had enjoyed a nationwide reputation. Um, some people felt it was a, uh, you know, a, a, a bad mark on Lexington. Others thought it was, uh, you know, part of the experience, as we mentioned, to come in and buy your horses and go to the races and then take a, take a nice meal at Bell's. So um, good or bad, you know, she's a big part of, of Lexington history and Kentucky history. And I think the, the more you read about her story, uh, you come away feeling that she was in a position where she had to do what she had to do and to take care of her child, uh, to work a job with a broken reputation that was beyond repair in town. And uh, she, you know, did the very best she could with it. And uh, there's, again, something classically American about that, you know, hard scrabble rags to riches. And uh, it's, it's an absolutely engrossing story. I mean, you, you, you will just dive into this thing and be, you know, captivated by it and as, as I was. And hopefully our, our little film will help, uh, help you on that journey as well. Absolutely. She is just such, such a mysterious person to me, like even, even with everything that you've found out about her. Um, and I just wanted to. So, that's what's so cool. You know, there's just all this fog around her to, to let your imagination sort of go yet, you know, all these, uh, these facts that uh, mm -hmm. you can also kind of construct 
the life from A to Z. So it, it really is kind of history at its best. And she creates more questions about how we treat people in our society and being overly religiously zealous versus, you know, secretly supporting this darker side of where we live. And I just, I've really loved talking to you about her today. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Any chance to talk about Belle? We're we're really proud of uh, the film and appreciate the, the time spent with you. Great conversation. Yes, thank you so much. I have been talking today with Doug from Doug High from uh, High Impact Productions about his documentary Bell Breezing and the Gilded Age of the Bluegrass. Um, you can tune in to Lex Talk every week at this time and to talk about other commonly asked Lexington questions and topics. Um, some coming up are uh, Cocaine Bear. We're going to delve into that story, um, which was the most Great. requested story. Great. Oh, it's a great story. I'm yes. That. Yes. Uh, the most requested story topic that I've had thus far is the legend of cocaine bear and the bluegrass conspiracy. We're also going to talk about what the heck is going on with recycling in Lexington, because there's a lot of back and forth there. And we're going to hear from a professor in the UK folklore department about some Lexington legends. So thanks again, Doug, for coming on. Thank you. Great. Appreciate you.